Good morning, church. Good morning. Our parable today is the parable of the ten virgins. So if you have your Bible today, uh, you could turn to Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Before we get into our parable today, I want to ask you a question. In all your reading of the Bible and all your studying of the Bible, what are some passages that you have came across that you consider to be fearful or frightening? Anthony? Um, the unpardonable sin, when I was trying to understand that as an early Christian, that was, that was a little terrifying. Right, that is a scary passage. A anybody else? Matthew ben? 7, when uh, Jesus says, many will say to me um, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not go to church in your name? Did we not pray in your name? And then he says unto them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, I, I would agree with Ben there. I think in all my studies of the Bible, that verse probably scares me the most. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. That, that's a frightening passage. And, and, and another passage from the Bible that comes on par with Matthew 7, 21 to 23 is the parable we're going to look at today, the parable of the ten virgins. This, this is also a passage of the Bible that puts the fear of God into us. The, um, so we're going to read our passage today, Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus says in verses 1 to 13, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the doors were sh was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're going to bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father God, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for this evening that you have given us to once again to go and learn from your word. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would um, help us this uh, evening to hear your word, give us hearts to hear, hearts to receive your word. We pray, Lord, that your word will grow, grow on fertile grounds. Give us the grace and wisdom that we may prepare and long for your coming. Help us to be watchful. Help us not to be slothful. Give us grace to do your will and honor you in everything that we say and do. Help us not just to be hearers deceiving ourselves, but help us to be doers of your word. We pray all this in the matchless name of your son. So this parable here that Jesus uh, tells us shows us the difference 
between true Christianity and false Christianity. And here in this passage, Jesus is not dealing with those outside the church. He's not dealing with the Muslims. He's not dealing with the Hindus. He's dealing with those who profess to be his followers. He's dealing with the visible church. And when we look at our parable today, we see the difference between the five wise virgins who are the true disciples and the five foolish virgins who are the false disciples. One group was accepted, the other was rejected to their eternal doom. This parable stresses the truth that now is the time for preparation. When that day comes, it would be too late. The context of this passage is eschatological. It deals with the things to come. It deals with the future. The, the previous chapter, Matthew 24, is the, it gives us an overall description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, the previous chapter, it deals with, that chapter deals with two issues, the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Matthew 24 and the previous, uh, see, ever, when you look throughout history, you see that people has been setting dates of when Jesus is going to come. There's been many people saying, okay, Jesus is going to come this exact date. Uh, many of you know, in, during, um, I believe it was May 21st, 2011, if you was outside, you'll see people holding the signs, and you, when you went and talked to those people, they said that Jesus is going to come May 21st. And, and when you talk to them, some of them even have even sold their houses, sold their properties, sold their cars. And what, what the father, and, and this was Harold Camping, family radio that said Jesus is going to come May 21st, 2011. What, what Harold Camping's followers failed to do, they failed to be good Bereans. They failed to take what Harold Camping says and search the scriptures to see if what he was saying was so. Because if they search the word of God, they'll see that Jesus clearly taught in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Since we don't know when he's going to come back, we have to be prepared and ready for when he comes. The, the two chapters that follow Matthew 25 is also eschatological. The, the parable has to do with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, coming back for his church. This parable in Matthew 25 emphasized the importance for us as the people of God to be spiritually prepared to meet the Lord, either when we die or when he comes again. Either way, we're going to meet the Lord and we have to be prepared for his coming. Because on that day, if you're an unbeliever, you would have no further chance on salvation. The setting of this parable is a typical Jewish wedding. See, in, in, in our modern times, in engagements today, you would typically get engaged to the person you intend on being married to. And in this day, there are countless engagements that are broken. But in Bible times, when the, whenever there was a, a, betro a betrothal, in the, for you to separate with, with, the, with the potential spouse that you got betrothed to, you would, it, it was considered so serious to, to separate, you would have to get a writ of divorce. See, a, a Jewish wedding had three stages. The, the first stage was an engagement, and this was arranged by the father of the bride 
and the groom, and during the engagement, the two uh, potential couples didn't come together. And now the second stage of a Jewish uh, wedding was the betrothal. This was the marriage ceremony in, in which the bride and the, and, and the potential groom will come together before their families, and they would exchange vows in the presence of their family and friends. And when the betrothal happened in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they were considered to be married, even though they never consummated their marriage, even though they never lived together. And the groom would typically have about a, a year's time to, you know, to, to get a job, to secure a place for the new married couple to live. But by the end of that betrothal period is when the marriage and the wedding ceremony would occur. And Jesus, and this parable occurs during the third stage of the marriage where the marriage ceremony occurs. And during the third stage, the groom would come. In our modern times, uh, marriage usually happens in the daytime, but in biblical times, it usually occurred in the nighttime. And, and the groom would leave his house at, at nighttime with his groomsmen and go to the house of the bride and their bridesmaids, and, they'll, and he would accompany the bride and the bridemaid at night, and they'll shout, the wedding feast is prepared, and they'll go on their way at night with lamps to the wedding ceremony. And this third marriage ceremony is what we see in this parable. And the first point we want to look at in our parable is the character of the bridesmaids. And we see this in verses 1 to 4. In Matthew 25, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. In ancient Near Eastern custom, it was custom that bridesmaids be chased young virgins who never married. Notice, it's not five wise virgins and, and five foolish harlots, but it's ten virgins. And the Bible says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps. It, the Greek word there for lamps is lampas, and, and it meant torches. The torches at, at the nighttime where the wedding occurred lighted the way to the wedding feast. The lamps had strips of clothing that would be doused in olive oil, and you will light it up. And oftentimes, during the wedding ceremony, when they're waiting for the bride, uh, the groom, to come, there will be a delay. So usually, people carried extra oil with them. And the lamps were a symbol of being prepared. And if you didn't have oil in your lamp, you were unprepared for the bridegroom's coming. And... In verse 25, verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Jesus, in this parable, doesn't explicitly tell us who the bridegroom is. But we know who the bridegroom is. Who's the bridegroom? Christ. And, and this, is, uh, uh, this teaches us a significant theological truth. This shows us, this parable shows us the divinity of Jesus Christ. Because the bridegroom was a word picture that was only given in the Old Testament to God himself. See, the, the, the unfaithful bride of God in the Old Testament was, was Israel. And in Isaiah 54 and Hosea 2, 
Yahweh is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. So this shows us, this word picture shows us that Jesus being the bridegroom, this shows us that Jesus is none other than Yahweh himself, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. Next, Jesus goes on to describe the character of the, of the, of, of the virgins. In Matthew 25, 2, he says, Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. Here, the, the, the Greek word for foolish is moros, where we get the English word moron from, where, and, it, and it literally means stupid. And this was not an intellectual category where he was not speaking of, of his intellectual ability or capacity, but it was a moral ca category when the Bible calls them foolish. Because the reality is that these five foolish virgins, they could have done good on an IQ test. They could have been uh, part of Mensa, the International Society of those who have high IQs, but they were spiritually and morally bankrupt. See, the reality is sin makes us stupid. Sin causes Adam and Eve to leave paradise for just a bite from the fruit. Sin causes the prodigal son, who's in, in, in the lavish riches of his father, enjoying the food, the comfort, the warmth of a nice house, his protective, nurturing care, Sin causes him to, in absurdity, to leave all that, to, to waste his life on riotous living, and at the end of his life, where is he? He's with the pigs, eating the pods that come from the pigs. Sin, the, 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 the stupidity of sin causes us to trade our, our, our marriages, trade our families, trade our reputations, for what? For a few minutes of pleasure. We, we all have heard of people who have dedicated years and years and years of faithfulness in the ministry to, 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 to trade their integrity, to trade the trust of their people, all for a few minutes of pleasure. Sin makes us stupid. On the other hand, the, the idea of being wise has the meaning of being faithful, being shrewd. Wisdom is, is skilled in living, is learning the truth of God's word and learning to apply it in everyday life. Uh, Anglic Anglican bishop from Liverpool, Bishop J.C. Riles, has said, the professing church is compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. All of them had lamps, but only five had oil in their vessels to feed the flame. All of them professed to have one object in view, but five only were truly wise and the rest were foolish. The visible church of Christ is just in the same condition. All its members are baptized in the name of Christ, but not all really hear his voice and follow him. All are called Christians and profess to be of the Christian religion, but not all have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts and really are what they profess to be. Our own eyes tell us that it is so now. The Lord Jesus tells us that it will be so when he comes again. Members of Christ Church, we're going through the series on parables, and we went through the parables of the wheat and tares, and we know that Christ's visible church is a, a mixed group. In, the, in Christ's visible church, there's the tares, and there's the wheat. There's the sheep, and then there's the goats. 
there's true disciples and then there's false disciples. When Christ comes again, that's when that moment is truly revealed of who's a wise virgin and who's a foolish virgin. And I want to ask you a question today. What's the difference between just having a profession of faith and possessing faith? So what's the difference between a possession of faith and profess, just a mere profession of faith? Pastor Paul, right? Has the head knowledge, but the possessor has the heart knowledge. Very good. Amari? Um, Jesus said a tree is recognized by its fruit, and so a Christian bears real fruit, uh, fruit of the Spirit. Very good. Yes. Works. Works. Because he says faith without works is dead. So one that professes and one that, you know, one, one that speaks. If, if two of them dealing with faith, one, one without faith is dead, but the one with works, you know, is alive and fruitful. Amen. The, I, I believe the reformers used the word uh, essentia and fiducia to explain this further. Essentia, just giving assent to certain facts, to doctrinal truth and fiducia. Uh, you take those truths and it becomes a heart knowledge. There are plenty of great theologians who are orthodox, who believe the right things about eschatology or the divinity of Christ. They believe the Trinity, but they're not born again. So, and, and there's no fruit in their life, just like Amari said. In Matthew 25, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. So the foolish virgins were completely unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom. No one knows the hour the bridegroom comes, but the five wise bridesmaids took extra oil with their tor uh, torches, and they were prepared just in case of the scenario that occurred, that the bridegroom was delayed. And this parable is teaching us that we must be prepared. We must be watchful. There are some Christians in our day that have a very anemic view of Christianity. They, they believe an e uh, easy believism just because they, they base their faith on the sinking sand of I walked down the aisle when I was younger or I said the sinner's prayer or I was baptized when I was younger. But they have no interest in holy living. They have no interest in doctrine. They have no interest in going to church. They have no interest in sanctification. They, they are not watching and persevering. See, right theology leads to right living. And the truth of anticipating the second coming of Christ is a truth that should purify us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. First John 3, verses 2 to 3, John tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. See, the hope of the return of Jesus Christ, the, the, the hope that one day we're going to stand in his holy presence and meet him face to face, ought to purify us. Now, if you have an important guest coming to your house, would you leave it dirty? Would you leave it unclean with rags on the countertops from the cooking? Everything messed up? No, if you have a wife like mine, you'll make sure everything is in order, everything is clean. Uh, so in the same way, hope means an expectation. When, when Jesus Christ comes again, we don't want to be found with our garments soiled by the flesh, with our hands defiled by sin, with our hearts divided, with our one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We don't want to be found un, un, unwatchful. We don't want to be found unprepared with our sins and unconfessed sins and failures exposed before him. No, by the grace of God and by his empowering spirit, we want to deal with any known sin in our life and be made right with God. So when he comes, we won't be ashamed of his appearing. So we saw the character of the bridegrooms. Now in verses 5 and 9, we want to look at the carelessness of the bridesmaids. Sorry, the character of the bridesmaids, and now we're going to look at the carelessness of the bridesmaids. Verse 5, it says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And I'm going to lock in on that one word, as the bridegroom was delayed. This is the reference, the, this delay that is speaking of here, Jesus is speaking of, is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are some who hold to full preterism, and they believe that all the prophecies of the Bible has already been fulfilled and Jesus has already come. But in, in, in verse 5, we see that Jesus taught his disciples that that the fact that he'll not, not that he'll come in this generation, but that his coming will be delayed. Jesus implies to his disciples that his coming will be delayed and no one will know the time or an hour when he's going to come. And the next verse says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. There was nothing evil or wrong about the bridesmaids sleeping because at that time it was like we said the wedding occurred in a, at, at the very night watches and it was natural for the bridesmaids to be tired at this time and plus they didn't know what time the bridegroom was coming so they slept verse 6 says but at midnight there was a cry here is the bridegroom come out to meet him and we know when Jesus Christ comes again there will also be a, a shout in the voice of an angel. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself should descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and, show, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So in our passage, the bridegroom will come to where the bride was. And th that was the custom of the day. The bridegroom at night with the uh, groomsmen would come to the bride and her bridesmaid and together they'll make their way to the marriage ceremony. In Matthew 25, 7, it says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. What they did was they rose and, and they cut the burnt parts of their lamp, the cotton that was already burned. 
and they'll cut the burned part of the cotton and replace it with new cotton strips. And they'll douse it in oil so they have fresh fire and oil for their journey on to, into the w wedding ceremony. And when the, when the bridegroom came, this was the pivotal moment. This was the apex. This was where the rubber beats the road. This is when we see who is prepared and who is unprepared. Who is careful and who is careless. In verse 8, it says, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. The carelessness, the utter carelessness of the bridesmaids is revealed here. They knew that at, at, at night the, grooms, the groom will come. They knew that at times there will be a delay, yet they neglected to take extra oil with them. Now they, they in their neglect, now they're in a time of crisis. They need oil. And they ask the wise virgins, can I have some of your oil? And this is how the wise virgins answer in verse 9. But the wise answers saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So here, the wise virgin said, no, I cannot give you my oil. Go get your own oil. And I want to ask you a question. Is faith and salvation something that can be transferred? So th there are people that say, what about the people that say, you know, my, my uncle's a pastor, my parents are pastors, or, or what about someone that says I was baptized? The Bible tells us that um, we have to run our own race, which would definitely speak to that faith cannot be transferred. Very good. This is one of the things, this is why I'm a Baptist and not a Presbyterian, because those who hold to a paedo-baptist view of baptism have an overarching theology. They're, the reason why their babies are baptized is because their parents are baptizing their children based on their faith. Mm. They're transferring their faith to their child in the hopes that eventually they'll grow up and that they'll affirm and confirm the faith of their parents Generally speaking, in Presbyterian circles, kids are raised up to believe they're children of the covenant, and that's the term they use. And they're given such false assurance from when they're little, when they grow up into reprobates, but they believe because they were sealed in the covenant in baptism as a child and raised in a Christian home that assures them of salvation. In a sense, what they're doing is transferring the faith of their parents to the kids. And, um, you know, I've had recently discussions with someone over this. It, it is beyond me how some of our brothers and sisters who we really respect and admire, even some world-class theologians, buy into this theology. Mm. That's, a, that's an excellent point, Pastor Bob. The, uh, our, our Presbyterian brothers who we love and respect believe that their children are, their babies that are born 
to their families are in the new covenant. And we know from reading God's word that just like we read in the London Baptist Confession this morning, we're not just sinners by choice, we're sinners by birth. And so we need, so just being born to a Christian family is not going to make you born again. Jesus says you must be born again. Pastor Paul. Um, I, this testimony of Billy Graham, he was paid to, uh, it went on to pay to baptism. His parents were Presbyterians. And um, he was confirmed and he thought everything was okay until he heard Mordecai um, Brown, uh, Mordecai, I, I forget his last name. Um, he went to the uh, evangelist. Uh, he, he was there, the guy was there, the evangelist was there was Mordecai I Ham. That was his name, Mordecai I Ham. He was uh, conducting an evangelistic crusade for uh, three weeks. And uh, Billy Graham thought he was a religious circus. Uh, he just looked down upon it. But he finally uh, was uh, a friend that worked on the farm, persuaded him to come. And he heard the gospel like he never preached before. And he began to be convicted. He began to go night after night. And finally he came to realize, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. And I just wanted to give that testimony because I just uh, reading about it. Yeah, well, um, that which I wanted to say, Pastor Bob, yeah, covered. I remember once um, Pastor Rich and I were talking to a gentleman and his wife. I mean, he's always in church with his wife. And the question came to ask him, you know, are you born again? Are you saved? And then he went on to tell us all of his relatives that were saved, you know, and, and <laughs> who knew the Lord, but never answered the question which was directed to him. Yeah. And um, so you find that um, people who are, raised um, in Christian families, children who are raised in Christian families and have relatives who are Christians do get some form of inoculation and being convinced that they themselves, because these people are saved, they too are saved. And, and there's a kind of danger there. Yeah. Anybody else? So we see that our faith and salvation is not something that you can, uh, parents cannot give their salvation to their children, children cannot give it to their parents, spouses cannot give it to their spouses. Just like we read in our London Baptist Confession this morning, that we're born in sin. Sin has so touched every faculty of our being. Someone that is unregenerate has a natural anti-bias anti-God bias. They do not seek after God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. I like what Vadi Bakum said. He said, babies are like little vipers and diapers. <laughs> so, so we see that that's why Jesus says, you must be born again. In John 1, 12, 13, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, we see that spiritual preparation cannot be transferred from one person to the other. Every, when you stand before God that day, your parents cannot come and put a good word in for you. 
you cannot come and put a good word in for your parent. No, you are responsible when you stand before God of what you did with the gospel message. When you heard it, did you harden your heart to your own peril and destruction, or did you repent to your eternal bliss and joy? So we see the, the, uh, the character of the bridesmaids. We, we see the carelessness of the bridesmaids. And the last point I want to look at is the consequence of the bridesmaids. And we see this in verses 10 to 13. In verse 10 it says, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The, the foolish bridesmaids went to the merchants late at night for some oil. But due to their carelessness, due to the lack of preparation, it was too late for them to come to the wedding party. And, and this is probably the most frightening, sobering verse. The door was shut. They might have come now with their lamps, oil filled to the brim. But the door was shut. They might now come to the door with the greatest desire in the world to come in to the wedding ceremony. But the door is shut. Just like in, in Genesis, when Noah preached for, for decades and decades and decades of the judgment that is to come, and no one listened to him, no one repented, no one came into the ark except for Noah and his family, and in that ark, animals came, and just him and his family came into the ark. But once that door was shut, not one more soul can enter that ark. And for those who, who scoffed, for those who mocked, the consequence for them, what remained for them is the cataclysmic wrath of God in the form of a flood, a worldwide flood that engulfed the whole earth. Now God is extending his mercy towards sinners every day. He's beckoning them to repent. He's he, he, the greatest news in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He extends his hands of mercy to them. He calls them to repentance. But for those who, who stiffen their neck, harden their heart, do not heed the call to repent, something worse would happen to them than what happened in, in Noah's time. See, in Noah's time, they, they, they faced the physical cataclysmic wrath. But those who failed to repent, those who remain in their rebellious state, they would face the eschatological wrath. And they'll be engulfed in the tsunami of God's wrath, as we read in Revelation, in the lake of fire. The Bible says, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is never quenched. Jesus described hell in, in the end of Matthew 25, he says some will go to eternal life and Jesus says some will go to eternal punishment. And, and, th and the emphasis there is on eternal. Hell, despite, it never ends. Forever and ever and ever. For those who, who, who continue in their rebellious state, who, those who in the stupidity of sin continue to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness and exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In verse 11, it says, Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. 
But he answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Here's the foolish virgins coming. The door is shut to them. And a parallel passage, just like Ben said earlier uh, in the Bible study, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of heaven, but, all, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Here's people. They're doing some of the greatest works you can possibly do under heaven. They're prophesying, which another word for prophesying, they're preaching. They're casting out demons. They're doing many mighty miracles. But Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Is there any more fearful verses in the Bible and all about that cause you to tremble and fear? This ought to cause us to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. A, a, great, a great book I'll recommend to you to, for assurance of salvation, the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, it keeps us from easy believism and also keeps us from hard believism. The, the Catholics believe that you cannot know that you're a Christian, that you, the Catholics believe you cannot know for sure that you're going to heaven. But in First John, John says, I wrote these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you read the book of 1 John, John gives us a couple of tests to know whether you're, we're a true child of God. Dr. Joe Beakey says, you cannot have high levels of assurance if we have low levels of obedience. So he says, and it's one thing, when you stand before that door, it says the door was shut, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. See, it's one thing, like we heard this morning, for the society to look at you as you're the scum of the earth and reject you. It's one thing for society to scoff at you and, and, and call names at you and mock you. But it's another thing when your own family members or your spouse rejects you. So we could take the rejection of the world and society, but it, it's, it's often hurtful and painful, and nothing more painful than a spouse rejecting you or a, a close loved one or a friend rejecting you. But imagine on that day you stand before him, him who is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the lord God omnipotent who rules and reigns, the creator of the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them, rejects you. There's nothing more painful than that, but there is good news. See, today you can meet Christ as your savior. Today, he beckons you to come to me, all those who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But if you fail to heed the urgency of the gospel message, if you fail to heed the, the call to repent and believe, tomorrow, if you die in your sins or meet him when he comes again, you'll meet him not as a savior, but as a judge. So I, I want to ask you, what are some things that don't necessarily prove we are born again? Amari? 
just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're born again. That's a good point. True believers associate themselves with the people of God, but just because you're associated with the people of God doesn't necessarily mean that you're a true disciple. Uh, the greatest evidence that we belong to Christ and the greatest evidence that we don't belong to Christ is the proof that we belong to Christ. We love the word and want to be under the authority of the king. The proof that we don't belong to Christ is that we don't want to be under the authority of the word. That's the telltale terror. Um, by the way, uh, I'd just like to say this. You're talking about Christ speaking about hell. Do you know he spoke much, much more about hell than he ever did heaven? Mm. Much more about hell than heaven. And one more verse. Hebrew 9.27, about the singularity of man. You can't, uh, another's faith. It's appointed unto man once to die. But after this, the judgment. That's singular. Man, singular. Mm. Right. We're, we're going to be held accountable to no one else for what we do with the gospel. Good point. I never, never noticed that. Okay. No, also, saying the, saying the sinner's prayers. You cannot say, oh, I accepted the Lord. So many people say they accepted Christ, therefore, I'm okay. Mm. And um, this parable also teaches us mainly make sure that you are in the true gospel. Mm. Because these people that were, when they told them to run and buy or go to those people that sell, they were telling them, go to your false gospel. Go, because they're the ones that sell gospel. Go to them and buy your oil from them. Mm. That was a way of saying, you are not in the true church. You're not part of the true church. And that's what's going to happen to so many people. And when Ben said that phrase, depart from me, that was also a phrase that I never want to hear a part of, depart from me. And that's going to happen to so many people mm. because they're singing in the choirs, they're worshiping, they're praising God, they're dancing around in churches that are preaching the wrong gospel. Mm. And back to that covenant child, I was part of the OPC, Presbyterian Church, mm -hmm. which they taught the covenant child. <laughs> and we knew that was so wrong. And there was a, one of the elders, he didn't believe in a covenant child. And he said, if you go to Holland right now, that's why all the Dutch reformed churches are empty. Mm. That, that's a good point that you made, that the uh, sinner's prayer doesn't necessarily mean that we're born again. So you can, pray, being, uh, praying doesn't necessarily mean you're born again. You can be a wicked person and pray. The Bible says the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. So Pastor I Tom? just wanted to make mention that in this parable, the imagery of the torch and the oil is used. And um, we know symbolically in the Bible that oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So what you're really seeing here is that the ten virgins represent, like you said, the visible church. And it shows us there are a great many people who are part of the local church, who are members of the local church, who may even be ministers of the local church, who do not have, it goes back to the word you said, possess. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. Mm. They don't have the Holy Spirit. 
They have torches, but they have no oil to burn because they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They've never been born again. And I've been around long enough as a pastor, as a Christian, to see a lot of people come in with their torches burning fast. And they burn out real quick and they're gone. Yeah. The wake home flashes in the pan. Uh, sometimes you see people very enthusiastic. And then a year later, they're apostate. Why does that happen? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Those are those foolish virgins. They're, they're, they're not prepared. They're not truly born again. And they'll be shut out of the kingdom. What are some other things that prove that we're necessarily not born again? Uh, um, I just want to go back a little bit to that, that horrible word that you use uh, or phrase, the, the, the door mm. being shut. Yeah. It re reminds me of um, Esau, Jacob's brother, who was so careless mm. of his life that he, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And the consequence of that is that when he went to his father, when he realized that he went to his father, and um, there was nothing that his father could do for him. And um, what we are told in the New Testament is that there was no place of repentance for him. You know, that is a frightening place. That reminds me of a door being shot. You can't, you can't go in. That's it. That's a, 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 an eternal regret. That's a good point. Um, if you continue on in this chapter, um, it talks about the separation of the, 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 the goats and the sheep. Mm -hmm. And it talks about, God talks about feeding him and, and clothing him and sheltering him. He says that's when he recognizes you because you did all those things. Just like Ben, I think, was talking about, you know, they said, Lord, um, he said, depart from me, I knew you not, because this is when he recognizes you when you do those things. You know, my wife and I was talking this morning, and she said, you know, please make sure and ask them if they do, the, you know, clothes donation and, and those kind of things. And that's when, for me, I have to make sure that I'm doing those kind of things because I believe, you know, zo those are things that God looks at and recognizes, and he says, um, come in. Because if you read further, it talks about separating us and inviting some in and, and not allowing others to come in. So um, I think, it's, again, I, I mentioned works earlier. Faith without works is dead. Mm -hmm. But faith with works is what God, I believe, recognizes. Ben? I'll just give some um, some testimony from some of the things I've seen on the street. Um, on Friday, I was in Newark, and uh, while I was preaching the gospel, um, this woman had a had a joint in her hand, and she was screaming at me about how I'm I'm she she knows what I do in the dark about how who is she, who am I to tell her that she's not a Christian walking around with with a joint in her hand? She said, "Both of my parents are pastors." <laughs> and usually when I hear that, that's already a, a telltale sign that something, <laughs> something's wrong. But um, I, I see those things. I, I've actually heard that same sentence uttered by more than, more than one person. And um, right when they, when they say that, when they're against you, when they're opposing the preaching of the gospel, 
that is a clear evidence that you're not born again, that you're not, because Jesus says, whoever's, whoever's um, not against you is for you. Uh, he says that, I think, in Luke 9. But um, also, another thing that I saw this weekend is uh, a number of people, they rejected gospel tracts because they said, oh, I'm a Christian. And so they walk by and they say, oh, no, 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 you can give that to someone else. But then it's like, well, Charles Spurgeon said, have you no desire for others to be saved? You're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. And um, I just find that like, if you really are a Christian, if you've truly been born again, you would love to receive a gospel tract. You would, you would count it a blessing. Wow, this person actually shared the gospel with me. Just how rare that it is. I remember um, one time at work, actually, somebody left a gospel tract out, and I was just overjoyed. I took a picture of it. I was like, wow, somebody actually has shared the gospel with me for once. But um, also, they didn't try and take the time to, to understand what I believed. They, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't concerned whether or not I was actually saved. They weren't concerned with the message that I was preaching to these people. And so they would just walk by and be like, oh, no thanks, no thanks. But I see so many people like that on the street. It's just like if you don't care about evangelism, if you don't care about seeing the lost saved, then you're, you're not saved yourself. If you, if you, you're just proving that you haven't tasted and seen the love of God, the goodness of God, that you don't want others to experience it. So that's also, um, the Pentecostal church I came out of, one, when we was, uh, they, used to have, they used to have fasting prayer meetings. And one lady came up to me and said, do you speak in tongues? And I said, no. <laughs> then she said, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So they, they connect speaking in tongues to that you have the Holy Spirit or you're saved. Um, I, I think another way is... Um, you, you can read the Bible, you can quote scripture, um, but if the Holy Spirit, Spirit isn't indwelt in you, you cannot understand the scriptures. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that was so true. <laughs> um, I could say verses that I've memorized, but it, wasn't, it was a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge mm -hmm. for, for very long until God saved me. Piggybacking on the head knowledge, you can correct theology doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved, because here in, in our passage we see that the the um, bridesmaid says, "Lord, Lord," they believed in the divinity of Christ. They was waiting for the groom's coming. That's eschatology. They they had the right they had the right Christology. They had the right eschatology, but still the door was closed for them. But heretical theology is a sign that that person is not born again. But right doctrine doesn't necessarily mean that they're born again. Uh, here in the parable, uh, though, with the virgin, um, uh, piggyback on what um, Pastor Bob says, because you will see here that um, the, the outward visible church um, is, is a mixture of, of people. It reminds me of the vineyard. It is God who plants mm. the seed. And he plants good seed in the vineyard. But there is also another who plants. Mm -hmm. They tell you the wicked one also plants. And so there you have the mixture. You have those who are planted by God, who have the spirit of God, and those who are not. And, and, and these two 
are together in the outward visible church. But those who have the spirit of God will remain and continue. That's what we are seeing with the virgin. When they, they all fell asleep. They all got drowsy and was waiting and fell asleep. But they rise up and there were those who possess, you see, the, the truth. They possess the spirit of God mm -hmm. and those who did not. And so you have that dynamic in the outward visible church. Mm -hmm. No wonder God says, we cannot judge any one of us in the sense of trying to root up anything mm -hmm. because then you will destroy the very wheat itself. The, the, the whole thing is he will do it because he knows his plan. Mm -hmm. He knows those who are his. Pastor Bob? I say it again. I think Pastor Paul would agree with me that one of the tragedies I've seen over the, over we see over the years is how many have fallen away. Mm. Um, and anyone who's been in this church for any significant amount of time can attest to the fact that we see many people come through our doors who gave great testimonies, who got baptized and gave moving stories and cried and wept and who led evangelism teams, who were deacons, who were trustees, people who preached. I had a man who was one of my groomsmen in my wedding. He was probably one of the most gifted preachers I ever met, who led worship, who helped us plant this church. They don't walk with Christ anymore. I've seen it so many times. It, you get jaded as you get older because you've seen it enough where you start to realize, but it hurts every time. But it's a warning to us all. I don't look with condescension. There's a warning here. It's about being prepared. It's keeping your oils lit. It's keeping your lamps filled with oil. This means we have to constantly go to the Lord and depend on the Spirit. Oftentimes it speaks through the book of Acts about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we need to constantly seek the filling of the Holy Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Spirit. Instead of trying to take control of our lives, ourselves, depend on ourselves. The, the virgins were stupid and lazy. They, they weren't prepared. That's the whole thing. Weren't prepared for the groom's, bridegroom's coming. They got lazy. And this is a theme through many of the parables in Matthew's gospel, and especially in the end there, chapter 25, preparedness for the second coming. And I could tell you this, you could be very busy in church, very active in church, but if you're not leaning on the Spirit, leaning on God, I tell you, judgment day is going to be terrible. You're all acquainted with... Um, that last minute conversion of the thief on the right. Although there's so little said there, yet to me it's the greatest example of one who truly been saved against the professor. And this is what I mean with that. Why would the Lord say after this thief said, Lord, save me? Or Lord, I want to be in your. Uh, I want to be in your kingdom, or remember me. You come into your kingdom, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the Lord observed true repentance when He said, "We're getting what we deserved." 
this one here in the center has done nothing wrong. It would almost seem to me like the, all the scuttlebutt that he heard about Jesus in, when he would in a life of crime. Then he saw firsthand the evidence that this is really true, God the Son. When he heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it must have really touched his heart in a way. So when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, what you, and the Lord could look right inside him, he was saying, Lord, I want to be under your authority. And that's the evidence. I want to be under your authority. That's the evidence of salvation. Mm -hmm. And the thief on the cross made that so plain. Thank you, Paul. And we hit all the points. Just the last point that shows that we're necessarily not born again is morality. In our passage, we see it was not the parable of the five wise virgins and the five foolish harlots. It was the parable of the ten virgins. They had a, a certain righteousness. They had a morality. But even to them, the door was shut. I, I like what uh, Dr. Steve Lawson said says, hell is full of sincere religious people, never born again, and heaven is full of immoral people who repented and believed in Christ. Amen. So the, the parable that is before us today, as we go through it, if we go through it and we realize we're not the wise virgin we thought we are, but we're the foolish virgin, that's good news because the, today is the day of salvation. That there is hope in Jesus Christ today. But, and you can, at this moment, at this very moment, there's an urgency to the gospel message because now we can seek the oil while it may be found. But if we put this off, the, if we neglect this, if we become so careless about our souls, Jesus says, what is to gain the whole world and lose our soul? Jesus says, if we, if we live a life of neglect and apathy towards the things of God, we would be caught once again in the deceitfulness of sin, the stupidity of sin. The writer to the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is not one drop of hope and help apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him while we still have a chance. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. May God bless you with these words. him to teach us uh, through this parable and make us all consider, Lord, Lord, may none of us walk out of here so arrogant or proud to think, well, that's not me. I pray that we would all humble ourselves before under your word and that we'd search our hearts and search us, O oh Lord, try us and show us if there be any evil way in us that we may need to repent. May we not be found to be one of those foolish virgins on the day of judgment. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.